Great, great to see you all here. I, I can't tell you how weird it was last week to, to preach to an empty room again, but have nothing to do with a certain virus that we've been concerned about. I thought that was a bit ironic, not in the positive way at all, but it is good that we can all be back together. It is something exciting and something important that happens when we do gather together as a community of God, and we have learned and relearned not to take that for granted. Also just wanted to speak just a bit on Lent, uh, as Shauna mentioned here too, and we gave an announcement uh, last week. Uh, we want to call uh, us together as a spiritual family to a time of fasting over the course of Lent. This is going to be done uh, along with uh, many other EMC churches. The Come and See series that we've been a part of has is, is been a sermon series, but is designed to be more than that. It's designed to bring us to a place of spiritual renewal. And so fasting for Lent is part of what we are hoping to do uh, towards that end. I haven't done very much fasting before. I'm a bit of a, a rookie when it comes to that. I understand that you've uh, done some uh, fasting and some observing of Lent here in the past, and hopefully many of you will be familiar with that. But if you're not, the Spiritual Life and Care team has given you a list of examples of what you can choose to give up. And then what I like about the list that this group came up with is they also encouraged you to add something in. And that is so important. Fasting isn't just about denying ourselves something. It's about what we do in Stead, in that place that can draw us to the feet of Jesus, that can help us continue to be reminded about our quest for spiritual renewal. Uh, and so you can grab onto this pamphlet or this insert and take it with you. But what we are also going to do uh, early on this next week, so by the time Lent starts on Wednesday, March the 2nd, on our church website we'll have a, a page dedicated to Lent. You'll be able to go to stonybrookfellowship.com and then you'll see right on the navigation there a page for Lent. You can click on that. Uh, there'll be a, a, an intro video that I'll put together. You'll see this list there that will stay up uh, the whole time and some uh, different idea, devotional ideas throughout the time of Lent. So feel free to go and to navigate there and to explore that, and then we can keep engaged. And you don't have to do what we've recommended you do. Uh, so if you want to fast and you want to do just a food fast, and it's going to be uh, one day a week, and you're saying set it aside for fasting, that would, be, that would be more than okay. Or if you want to do a fast from social media for the whole 40 days, by the way, I double-dog dare you to do this. If you want to fast from social media and use that time to then add something in spiritually meaningful, then you can do that as well. So again, what we've given you are just suggestions. You can come talk to me if you have any more questions. Check out our website. Uh, I'm just really excited about what God is going to do uh, in our lives and in our community. And what we look forward to is at the end of Lent, we are going to give you the opportunity when we share here on a Sunday morning to share something that God has taught you during the time of fasting. So we're going to come and share stories and be encouraged about what God has been up to. So I'm looking forward to that. So one of the things I love to do is I love to read. I enjoy reading all the time, right up until the moment when it becomes assigned reading. <laughs> and for whatever reason, as soon as someone says you have to, I'm like, I don't know if I want to anymore. It takes the joy out of reading. And that stayed true for me all the way through the end of my seminary days. I could be reading the greatest books ever, and if they were assigned, it just didn't feel quite the same. I learned this lesson back when I was in grade 7, and part of my schooling then was uh, the state of Texas wanted to do a state of, uh, they wanted to uh, have an accelerated reading program. So all the kids that were behind, they wanted to find a way to, to encourage them to catch up to their reading level. And so each age group or grade would have a, an assigned or an acceptable reading list of books you could read that were at that reading level, and then you'd have to take a reading retention quiz. It's just basically what happened in the book. You have to take that quiz to prove that you had read it. 
Now, for, for many people, this was helpful, but for me and my friends, we, had, we were reading different books. These were, were not our reading level anymore, so we didn't like this program at all. These were books we hadn't read for years. So, of course, we did what any good seventh grader would do, and we found a loophole. And we went down this accelerated reader list, and we tried to find any books that also had movies. And any movies that we had seen, oh, Jurassic Park, that was a good movie, and apparently a book. Okay, so I could sit down... And I could take this reading retention quiz. Ah, boom, 10 times out of 10. Um, so, you know, the moral of the story is don't cheat. It never, cheaters never prosper. Uh, don't love assigned reading. One of the things about this Come and See series that I have liked is that these passages have been assigned to me. Our conference pastors put together a very effective lectionary. And so every week I can get into my office. I can load up what the next passages we're going to go through in Luke and then later on here in Matthew. And I can just get to studying and I don't have to put some of the same time and energy towards deciding what to preach on. I love that. It's been a gift all the way up until today, because today he assigned a passage that I would never choose to preach from if I was the one making these decisions. And, uh, and it's a challenging passage. It's difficult. But one of my favorite Francis Chan quotes, it says, to be a biblical preacher, you don't just preach from the Bible, you preach all parts of the Bible. Whether they're easy to understand or hard, whether they're challenging or encouraging, we go to God's word and we approach it in humility and learn from it. And so perhaps it is a good thing that this has been assigned, not just for my sake, but for our sake, to interact with something that may be difficult that we can still learn so much from. And so the passage is going to be Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles and we'll, we'll hang out here. This will be home base for the morning, uh, though we will go and have some other uh, passages we'll read together as well. But Luke 12, 49 to 53, and I think you'll find out quite quickly why this is a bit of a hard passage, especially in the day that we're living in today. So Jesus here is teaching and he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? <laughs> no, I tell you, but rather division. This is the part where I'm like, how am I going to preach this? From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There we go. That's what we're going to dig into today. Let's pray about it first. Okay, pray with me. God, I just, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that, that we, need to, we need to approach it with humility and, and acknowledge that some things are hard to understand. But Father, these are the words of your son and our savior and we, we take them to heart. And I pray that your spirit would be here this morning as we ask every week to guide us into your truth so that we truly would, by the guidance of your spirit, be able to understand what Jesus truly meant by these words, to understand how that matters to us today. God, I pray that, that we would be excited about this journey together. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to say that in my summary of understanding this passage, I believe Jesus is putting forward two main arguments that together give us the complete picture of what he is saying to his disciples here. And the first, new, uh, the first part, the first main idea that Jesus is saying is, is he's looking forward to the good news of judgment. The good news of judgment, which is maybe a way that you haven't heard judgment explained before. And we're going to get there. We're going to build to that. But for now, this is what I would say Jesus' first idea is. And he says right at the outset, 
I came to cast fire on the earth. Which is, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like the Christmas story I remember going through not that long ago. I mean, he came to cast fire on the earth. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does fire symbolize? And clearly here, the fire symbolizes judgment. Uh, we know this for a few reasons, uh, mainly because fire has been the primary symbol of judgment from the beginning of the Old Testament right till the end. We are reminded again of that story of Sodom and Gomorrah that Luke reminds us of many times, in which God, in his righteous judgment, rained down fire to destroy those communities. And then that fire as judgment remains a constant theme all the way to the very end of Revelation, where God uses the eternal lake of fire to enact his final act of judgment on Satan and his demons. And so fire is often used as judgment. And here it's no different. We can be fairly confident of this because the passage we read together is sitting within a greater teaching of Jesus. He is teaching many things in a row here to his disciples, and many of which are talking about the importance of repentance and the latter days and the coming judgment. That's the context that this sits in. And so I think we can be confident that fire symbolizes judgment. It is likely not referring fire in this context to the Holy Spirit. That's something that does happen as well in Scripture, especially when we look forward to the day of Pentecost, as Luke describes it in the book of Acts, in which the Holy Spirit uh, falls upon the disciples in tongues of flame. And it can also be something that fire refers to, but in this teaching of Jesus, it refers to judgment. And, and so right away, we, we are maybe, if you're like me, you're taken aback. Oh, wow. Jesus says he's come to bring fire. Like, this seems to be out of the ordinary. This jumps off the page at us because it, at first glance, doesn't seem to be in line with all of what we've been learning about the mission of Jesus so far. But I would say that that is not completely true. If we go back to the very first Sunday that we kicked off our Come and See series, we talked about the baptism of Jesus and how John the Baptist prophesied about the mission of Christ. And he prophesied something very similar to what Jesus is teaching here. So I'm just going to read for you all the way back to Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. People were asking questions of John the Baptist, and John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And even from the outset, we were reminded and we learned together that judgment is part of the mission of Jesus Christ that he has come to seek and save the lost, and he has also come to sort the wheat from the chaff. And so when we look at Luke 3 and now at Luke 12, we see that this idea of fire and judgment and division is already at play. So we should not be surprised. This has always been and remains a part of the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The baptism that Jesus refers to after talking about this fire of judgment also then refers to his death on the cross for our sins. He says he has this baptism that he must be baptized with. A few other times in the Gospels, when he's talking to the disciples about his death, he refers to it as baptism. And Jesus knows, he understands that it is necessary for him to die for our sins. You see, it's through his death that Jesus has secured our salvation, and not just his death, but also then the resurrection from the dead, where he conquered 
death in the grave and his ascension into heaven in which he can even now intercede and advocate for us with the heavenly father. All of this is what has made us possible for us to say, I have been saved from my sins. This is what it has happened to make it possible where we can say, I can face God's judgment. But of course, this was not an easy thing for Jesus to do. And he talks about how looking forward to the cross gives him great distress. Even now, and then we see this distress come uh, to fruition. The clearest picture we have of it is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before, right before Jesus is betrayed and then unjustly tried and then unjustly put to death. And he is so distressed by the weight of what is going to happen, not just the physical torture, not just the physical death, but the spiritual weight of the sins of the world that's going to be laid upon him. Jesus was so distressed in the garden that he sweated drops of blood. Now, I've been pretty distressed, but I've never been that distressed. And so even now, even when it's a little bit further away, Jesus understands the necessity, but also the weight of what he has to endure. And so we should never, never for a moment take for granted all of what it costs Jesus to secure the salvation that we desperately need. I think we can sometimes say, well, Jesus knew it ahead of time. He was the son of God. He had it all under control. But Luke gives us a good reminder and glimpse into the humanity of Jesus and how much he needed to endure for the sake of you and the sake of me. He was distressed and in anguish for what was coming ahead. But of course, it's no mistake that Jesus talks about his upcoming death and the importance of this death when he talks about judgment. So again, how could I say that Jesus is talking about the good news of judgment? He longs for the fire of judgment to come. He says, I'm going to bring this fire and I wish it was already here. How can he talk about this in positive terms? He can do this because judgment is where every wrong is made right. Every wrong will be made right. There is a good news to judgment. If you need any reminder, our world is broken. There are many unfair, unjust, broken things. In the past couple years, I think we've experienced all of what this brokenness has to offer. Uh, Sin and famine, plague, and now war. And if we're looking for these things to be put right here and now, we will always be left wanting. I have to admit, this last week was difficult for me. All of these things wore me down. Especially when I woke up to the news that Russia had finally invaded Ukraine. That hit harder than I was expecting it to. As much as I was dreading that happening, it hit a bit close to home. Because you see, my grandfather was born in Latvia as his parents, my great-grandparents, were fleeing what is Ukraine because of war. And I think there was a a little bit of a naive, innocent part of me that died. (laughs) Because I would have thought... Maybe never admit it out loud, but I would have thought, I think I trusted that that's what happened over 90 years ago, but that wouldn't happen today. I mean, we must have come farther. I mean, we must have, like that that, that happened when we didn't know any better, but now we understand how global peace and cooperation, how this is clearly the best thing. And we we could never be tempted by, by power the same way that we used to be. We could never be as basic and drawn into war as we used to be, right? Well, clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, The world is still broken. And what bothers me and what breaks my heart about what's happening in Ukraine is that it feels so unjust because it is so unjust. These people that are fleeing for their lives, fleeing from their homes, hundreds of thousands of them do not deserve such a fate. It was unprovoked. 
unnecessary, unwarranted, unjust. And so part of me wants to see justice happen, but the truth is, church, in this life, it very likely will never come. So what is the good news of judgment? That in the hands of the Lord, all of these wrongs may one day be set right. And so that day of judgment that we are still looking to come is terrible and is to be taken seriously, but it is also beautiful. And Jesus is looking ahead to the fulfillment of the kingdom of God where all of creation will be restored. And as Paul describes it, all of creation is groaning like in the pangs of childbirth. It is bent, it is broken, it needs to be redeemed and restored. And one day this will happen because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Part of this restoration will include the judgment of humanity, the sorting of the wheat from the chaff, the division of those who are truly part of God's kingdom and those who are not. Church, listen to me closely. Judgment can only be good news because of the cross. Because now, through Jesus, every single person has the opportunity to stand before God's righteous judgment and say, I am clean. Not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. I no longer have to dread that day. I can actually look forward to it, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And so when we have the cross and we look at this day in which God will set all wrongs to be right, we know that we, through grace, grab on by faith and say, I anticipate that day. It will be good news. I'd encourage you to consider if judgment is good news for you today, based on if you've decided to trust the righteousness of Christ. So yes, Jesus has come to rain fire, and he wishes that we're already here because he sees how wrong and unjust the world is. He knows it will be good news because of the cross that he is willing to endure. But Jesus also has a second argument here, and that is, the way I would describe it, the cost of loyalty. The cost of loyalty. Jesus has a a bit of a, a change in thought here. Not completely, but he goes into the second part of his argument by saying, do you think that I have come to give peace to the earth? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of think that was why you came. And he says, no, I tell you, but rather division. And then talks about how even family members will be opposed to one another another because of who Christ is. So I believe he is talking about the cost of loyalty. And the first thing we need to do is to remind ourselves and never forget the peacemaking mission of Jesus. So all that we have been taught through Luke so far, about how Jesus and peace are are so inseparable, we must remind ourselves because Jesus is not teaching anything different here. In Luke 2.14, we see that the angels appeared before the shepherds at the time of the birth of Christ, and they declared glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And when we went over this passage together, we established that the angels were saying that through this child, Jesus, it will now be possible for there to be peace between God and his people. That no longer will our sin make us hostile to God. No longer will it break that relationship. We can now be in right relationship with our heavenly father because of our salvation found in Christ. He has created peace between God and humanity. And later on, we were reminded in the teaching of Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Plain. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
So Jesus has said that the peacemaking ministry he's a part of is not limited to just between us and God, but it should spill out into how we treat other people. Even when they are opposed to us and hostile to us and want to do us harm, we respond in peace and in love and we turn the other cheek and we love them without measure, just as Christ loved us and gave us that beautiful example upon the cross. So when we come to Luke 12, I want to remind us all that these things remain true. Jesus has given us peace between God and us. He has commanded us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. None of that is, is, is changed in what we are reading here today. Jesus is not preaching anything different. Instead, Christ is teaching that the truth of who he is will divide people as they respond differently to him. Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. I am the savior of the world. I am the way in which judgment becomes good news. And I ask that you follow me with everything you have in return. And when some people respond positively to that, and some people respond negatively, there will naturally be a division. And it will cost us something to follow Jesus in this way. These divisions will happen even in the closest of relationships, as Christ describes here as family. Now, we should not seek out these divisions. As far as it's up to us, we should be at peace with others, right? Don't seek it out. But, but when it happens on account and only on the account of who Jesus is, then we should expect it as, as, the, count, uh, as the cost of discipleship, and we should grieve those relationships. Again, I just paraphrased it here, but I love the way that Paul says it in Romans 12, 18. As far, if possible, as far as it's up to you, live peaceably with all. This has been a really important verse. I know that as you've shared some of the struggles with me as, as to how the, the, the pandemic has, has threatened and, and, and risen some tensions in your, in your relationships, and you're trying to navigate how you can restore these, how you can protect these, how you can seek after unity, I've, I've really loved to quote that verse. You've heard me say it a few different times. I believe it's true. Here's the, here's the reality of it is that when a relationship is strained or bent or even broken, you can only, you can only uh, control one side of it. You can't control both sides. So Paul knows that. Jesus knows that. And what they are teaching is says, focus on what you can control. As far as it depends on you, seek after peace. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Uh, prioritize this relationship over your opinion. Whatever, however you want to interpret it, you can only control what you can control. And then it is up to that other person whether they want to move your direction in the same heart, in the same manner. And unfortunately, not everybody will. But know that you have done what you needed to do. And that is what Christ and Paul are teaching us here today. The call for us to action is not division. Jesus is saying division will happen because of who I am. Our response, what we need to do is not focus on division, but instead our call to action is to be completely loyal to Jesus Christ. Completely loyal. As we've as we've highlighted in our mission statement that we adopted, we want the end goal for our endeavors here as, as a group of people is that we can all be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's how we've put it. We want everyone to be devoted followers. It talks about this loyalty. It talks about this devotion. It talks about this single-minded pursuit of following Jesus. That this becomes the most important thing in our lives. And all of these other things that might threaten to distract us or even to pull us right off the road, that we would be willing to lose them for the sake of knowing Jesus more. You see, we must follow him no matter the cost. 
So going back to our passage, there is a, there's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10. And again, uh, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's often parallel passages, and sometimes we can get some very helpful extra information from one, and I think this is the case here today. So I'm just going to read briefly for you Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, uh, the, the same teaching in very similar language. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on, to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Matthew gives us this detail that helps us rightly interpret Jesus' teaching in Luke. So we are not called to want to be at odds with people, but we need to be willing to lose the most important relationships in our life if that's what it means to gain a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we live devoted to him, that there will be some things that will need to be lost. Now, fortunately for us, not many of us have ever been called to sacrifice our family relationships to follow Jesus. That might not be the case. Maybe some of you here have already considered this a cost that you've had to pay in order to pursue Jesus. I feel very fortunate that that in my family that hasn't been the case. But this doesn't just happen all those years ago, though of course in the early church, many people were disowned from their family from following Christ, lost their jobs and their social standing. In other parts of the world, this still happens today, but even here in North America, this is a present reality for many. One such example is Pastor Afshin Ziafat. And he grew up as a devout Muslim in Houston. And as he got older to become a teenager, his friends started to talk to him about Jesus and gave him a Bible and then uh, invited him to an evangelistic crusade where he got saved. And then he got home and it cost him everything. I want to share with you a bit of his story. I made my commitment to Christ at the evangelistic crusade, but driving home from the event is when it hit me. What am I going to tell my family? What am I going to tell my father? My father had always been the most important person in my life, the guy I'd always looked up to. I'm ashamed to say that I decided to hide my newfound faith from him and the rest of my family. I would sneak out to go to church, intercept mail from the church I was attending, and hide my Bible. Finally, one day, my dad found out. He'd seen my Bible, and he'd also seen other evidences in my life. He sat me down and said, Son, what's going on? There's something different about you. I said, Dad, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim. You'll always be a Muslim. I said, Dad, the Bible says that if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I do. My dad said, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. Everything in my flesh wanted to say, forget it. I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose the relationship with my dad. So I, even I, was surprised when I opened my mouth and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. My father disowned me on the spot. That is quite the cost to pay for loyalty to Jesus Christ. And again, I'm so grateful 
As Mercedes reminded us, sometimes when we see the things that other people don't have, it reminds us of the goodness of the things we do have and the goodness of God. And I'm so grateful I haven't had to sacrifice a relationship like that for the sake of following Jesus. But the truth is, there are many other things in our life that can threaten this. Anything else that takes our primary allegiance away from Jesus is exactly what he has preached about, what he has warned about in this difficult passage. And in scripture, we see other people who have loved something more than Jesus and have chosen not to follow him. It was wealth for the rich young ruler, religious prestige for many Pharisees, the comfortable and familiar for anyone who watched Jesus grow up. For King Herod, it was power and control. Samaritans, it was racial tensions. It was religious zeal for a man named Saul and philosophy for so many of the Greeks. What threatens your complete loyalty to Jesus? As Afshin said, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, I choose Jesus. That's what he said to his father. But what fills that blank in your life? If I have to choose between this and Jesus, I choose Jesus. For you, is it family? Is it friends? What about your personal health or your personal freedom? Money, authority, comfort. Many of these things which can be good things, which can be blessings from God, but they should never, ever be chosen over following Jesus. Never, ever choose. But at the end of that passage in Matthew, we see this beautiful promise of Jesus. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so I did mention this young man named Saul, whose religious zeal made him an enemy of the gospel for so many years, right up until his life was changed forever on the road to Damascus. And because of his encounter with Jesus, he lived a devoted life to him, following him. And we get this glimpse in Philippians as he is imprisoned near the end of his life. And and Paul can say unequivocally, I lost everything and it was worth it. Listen to these words in Philippians 3, 8 and, and following. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul gives us a gift. He wraps up understanding this passage with a bow. And he says, when you have this devotion to following Christ, when you are willing to give up everything else, you will find that it is so incredibly worth it. And the greatest gift that we have is to attain the resurrection from the dead. And then good news is judgment day. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it wasn't only Paul that learned this lesson. It was, again, Pastor Afshin who learned the same lesson. I want to share one more part of his story as we get ready to sing our last song. So the music team, you can come up, and we're going to read this story. I'll read the story for you. Afshin says, I'm passionate for people to know that there's a cost to following Jesus. 
what is it costing you to follow him? It might be that thing you're holding on to is the thing that's keeping you from living for his glory. For me, it was my dad. For you, it might be something else. There is a huge difference between being a follower of Christ and merely giving mental assent to the truths about Jesus. The call of Christ isn't simply believe the right things about me, but follow me. And following Jesus is defined by losing your life. It is laying down your dreams, your pursuits, your idols to grab a hold of the greatest treasures in life, Jesus. And when we lose our lives, God will leverage our lives for his glory and for others to know Jesus. There is no greater joy and fulfillment in life than this. And my hope and prayer is that as we are willing to count the cost of that loyalty to Christ, that we can also add our story alongside of Paul and alongside of Afshin and say, I gave up something for Jesus and it was worth it. Let's pray once more. God, it is hard to focus on the fire of judgment. Instead of thumping on a Bible and banging on a pulpit, I want to remind everybody that this is actually good news. It's good news because through Jesus, we can stand in his righteousness and look forward to that day of judgment when everything that's broken and wrong will be corrected and made right. And then on that terrible day, we can also see the beauty of your mercy and grace and forgiveness. God, I thank you for that good news. Father, I know that between now and then, there are times in which we will lose things on the account of following you. God, I pray that your spirit would be in the lives of everyone here to embolden them, empower them to be willing to live as devoted followers of you. And that when we do reach the end of our days, we can look into the eyes of those around us and say, I followed Jesus at great cost and it was worth it. I pray this in your name.